0: morning to you all, and good evening in Cape Town. We had some sickness in Phoenix as well uh, on the first day, and thereafter, people with very sore throats and colds, and Carla's still down with it, but going uh, okay. I got a cold that was spared the sore throat. Maybe God had mercy on me since I'm speaking. But as you may recall from the first day of unleavened bread in the morning I spoke and we talked about overcoming and the first impediment to that which is self-deceit. I began in Jeremiah 17 9 which we're all quite familiar with where it says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can discern it? Who can grasp it? Who can plumb the depths of how evil the human heart is? This is a lifelong job we have to do, is to remove the seat of our very own hearts. I also went, by way of summary, to Revelation 2 and 3, and showed that this is not just an affliction that occurred to people back in Jeremiah's day, but of the end-time churches. At least two of the major churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are absolutely and totally self-deceived about their true standing before God. One which says, I am alive, and yet God says, you are dead. One which says, I am rich and well-dressed and doing fine, and God says, no, you are naked and blind and deaf. So his description is totally the opposite of what people honestly, in their own best estimation, consider themselves to be. Now, what an indictment on us that is. If we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay, perhaps we are not. Now, the solution to this first problem really is given in James 1. he tells us to look into the perfect law of liberty, to look into God's word and honestly consider it as compared to our brain or as compared to our heart our thoughts, our own innermost feelings, motivations, and actions. Because the Word of God is what gives a true reflection. It's one thing to toddle ourselves and come to have one idea of ourselves, and yet quite another to look into God's Word, where it says to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. I'll use one little example here, and uh, I really would rather hide this one and not tell you about it, <laughs> you'll see what I mean. I persecuted one poor fellow last week who almost ate a donut or a jelly roll that he had picked up that the hotel had put out and not thinking early in the morning, and it was quite early, uh, he almost ate it. I fortunately happened to be there along with some of the other brethren and said, uh, is that 11?" And he got this appalled look on his face and said, yes. And he said, I was about to take a bite. Well, maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe he would have caught himself. But what goes around comes around. Next morning, a fellow, whose name I'll not mention, but his initials are Darrell Henson, uh, got on a plane (laughs) to fly back to Colorado. And I was busy thinking about something. I don't remember what exactly but the airline people came around and they handed out drinks and this little package of pretzel snacks. And I very quickly had a drink of juice and fumbled the package open. I remember actually I had a little problem with the plastic, as sometimes you do. If you don't grab it just right the first time, uh, then it's hard to get open. So I struggled with it a little while and still my foggy brain was not paying attention I mean, they pass this out. You eat it, don't you? It was on my second pretzel, but suddenly my mouth turned very bitter. One was down the hatch. The other I was chewing. And I very, um, well, I hope no one was looking. I spit what was in my mouth back in the bag. So what goes around does come around. I had no place to hide. I had it in my mouth. I couldn't deceive myself that I hadn't already swallowed one. And that brings us to the subject of today's sermon. The first problem we have with overcoming is self-deception and hiding our sins from ourselves. But the second is self-justification. What do people do when The deceit is stripped away and what they really are or what they really think comes out in the open. Well, we run and hide, don't we? We cover up. We run from the light. We don't want people to think evil of us. We don't want to think evil of ourselves. So we begin to make justifications. As I sat there in that chair, this went through my mind. I just swallowed this. I can't hide my deceit. or Well, it wasn't, I guess, in that case really deceit. It was just stupidity and not thinking. But I thought, how quickly, how easily that pretzel went in the mouth and down the throat. And as easy as that was, you know what? It's even easier for a banal, a foolish, a vain, a sinful, a downright evil thought to go through my mind. Any day, not just on the days of unleavened bread. See, the pretzel or the leavening is just a symbol. But it's what comes from within that defiles me. I almost gagged on the pretzel and I felt very, very badly about it. But how often does something sinful or wrong or foolish or vain go through my mind, and I allow it there, and it isn't nearly so distasteful to me as that pretzel was? And I justify why those thoughts might be in my mind. Now on a very simple level, I could have said it's the airline's fault, because they shouldn't pass that stuff out on Days of Unleavened Bread. Or maybe it was Marla's fault because she wasn't sitting beside me. We had to separate on a full plane. Had she been there, she probably would have stopped me. So it's her fault, isn't it, for not being there? Or maybe because I didn't eat breakfast, it was somebody else's fault. Because I was hungry and therefore I just unthinkingly grabbed for food. Now you realize these are stupid justifications. But I think we'll see today that many of our justifications are just that stupid and we live with them and buy them and for them. So, maybe I owe an apology to the poor fellow I made light of last week because he only almost did it. I did it. I don't think it's wrong that we kid each other in a good-natured, brotherly way. Yet on the other hand... Sin comes so easily to any and every one of us. The question is, what do we do? Do we deceive ourselves that we really have sinned, or do we, if we recognize it and can't hide from it, find some way to cover it up and justify it? Let's go back to the classic example again of Adam and Eve in the garden. Once they partook of that, their deception was removed. There was no doubt in their minds that they had sinned by what they had done. They deceived themselves into thinking it would be okay to do what God said don't do. Once that deception was removed, what did they immediately do? They ran and hid. They grabbed leaves and tried to cover themselves. As God came walking through the garden, and they didn't fall on their faces and say, Oh Lord, I have sinned, forgive me. They tried to cover it up. Suddenly they realized they didn't have clothes on, something they were unaware of before. So what did Eve say? The devil, he made me do it. She immediately justified by trying to deflect the attention off herself and onto someone else. And Adam, in one breath, blamed two. He said, the woman whom you gave me, made me do it. So he blamed first the woman, and then he blamed God for giving him a woman. See how quickly and how easily we can justify our actions, or try to justify our actions. It didn't really cut any ice with God, though, did it? He punished them for it, and surely they died. So what good did it do to try to hide? But well, we so often try to hide. And the theological term for this kind of hiding would be self-justification. What about Genesis 4? This this was catchy. Remember that uh, Cain had killed his brother Abel. Verse 9, Genesis 4, 9. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I know not. He just flat out lied. And then he justified it probably realized I can't get away with the flat-out lie. He'll see through it. So he begged the question by saying, am I my brother's keeper? He tried to deflect the responsibility off himself. How would I know where he is? Am I, am I my brother's keeper? You haven't made me my brother's keeper. He also was punished. Self-justification really doesn't do us any good. A classic example in the New Testament is in Acts 5. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not turning to these. You know the stories quite well. But the example fits so well here. Of two people who were in a situation with the rest of the church where there was a dearth, there was a problem having enough to eat. So the church all pooled the resources sold their land, did everything they could to raise whatever money could be raised, put it in a common pot that all could eat. An emergency situation. Ananias and Sapphira went along with this. But they thought, well, when this is all over, we'll need a start. We need a little nest egg. Therefore, when we sell our land, we'll save back whatever percentage they decided upon. It isn't stated in Acts 5. But they did conspire to hold back a certain amount. They justified this in their own mind. Even though everyone else was giving 100%, they found a way to justify holding something back from God and from God's people when they had actually agreed to give all. Now there's a deeper lesson here spiritually in one sense of us making a covenant with God to give our entire life to Him. Everything we are and have is His. But on a day-to-day basis, we tend to hold back a certain amount. And we find all kinds of reasons and excuses to hold back from doing what God says to do. Oh, you know the rest of the story. He came in by Himself and lied. And they drug him out by the feet. Then she came in, not having known what happened, and lied. And they drug her out by the feet, too. So their self-justification, all their conspiracy, all their ways of getting around what they knew they should do, did them no good. Now let's examine some of the excuses we use. Because it is so easy to justify our position Our deeds, our thoughts, and some of these that are used in the Bible are are almost funny when you look at them from a certain perspective. Let's go back to Proverbs 20 and verse 4. Proverbs 20 and verse 4. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. He is lazy by nature. He doesn't really want to get out and work and produce a crop. So what he says is it's too cold out there. Well, it'll probably still be too cold when planting season is over. And he will have nothing when harvest time comes. Because he used the excuse, it's too cold. He justified his position on the couch with the weather. God says, when harvest time comes, he won't reap. Now what about us as Christians? If we keep saying, the spiritual climate is too cold for me to grow in, will that excuse worship with God? What about harvest time? What if we're not overcoming and growing and we find a justification of climate? The spiritual climate in the church is pretty bad right now. Chapter 22, verse 13. The slothful man says, There is a lion without, I shall be slain in the streets. I can't go to work this morning because I know there's a lion out there waiting and he will chew me up on the way down to the job. I might have an accident on the freeway. There's a cougar waiting out there in the street to run over me. Mercury cougar. Or whatever the excuse might be. Did that bother David when the lion and the bear came after his flock? No, he rose up and slew them. A lion cannot be an excuse. How many excuses do we come up with for not doing that which we know we need to be doing? That's a pretty far-fetched excuse. There's a lion in the street. Now, when that was written, there were a few lions around, but they were rarely in the street. It might work if you're an Eskimo and there's polar bears out and it's dark at night. They will eat you. But there must be a way to get to work. Now, chapter 26, verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. Now, there sometimes really are reasons why we did not accomplish certain things. Maybe we had 15 things on our to-do list for today, and we got 10 done, and something happened, and, and it was legitimate, and really we didn't get it accomplished. But a sluggard or a lazy man, whether it be physically or spiritually, can find more vain reasons for not having produced than seven men can render a reason. In other words, there are more than seven excuses for every reason you come up with. We kid ourselves sometimes that it's a reason Well, really, it's an excuse. We need to learn and discern the difference of when we are excusing ourselves and when we really do have a reason we didn't get something done. Chapter 24, verse 12. There's a lot of wisdom in here. Chapter 24, verse 12. If you say, behold, we knew it not. This is a very ready excuse. Well, I just didn't know. Does not he that ponders the heart consider it? Doesn't he check our real motivation? Doesn't he discern between reason and excuse? He that ponders the heart considers it, and he that keeps your soul, does he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? What we actually do is what he's going to be judged by. Remember James 1? Not the forgetful hearers only. Not the forgetful hearers, but the doers shall be blessed. God just doesn't care about our excuses, frankly. And we've seen several examples where people were punished pretty severely when they offered excuses for their, in self-justification for what they had done or had not done. So God can see through the difference. His Word and His Spirit cut right through to the heart of the matter. And he ponders our motivations. We also must ponder our motivations. If God is, and he can see through them, then we had better see through them. Uh, Right here in Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 6. Suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say you before the angel, it was an arrow. It was an accident. I I, I made a mistake. Or you were mistaken. Wherefore should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? In other words, you offer the excuse and God says that causes you to sin. That excuse is a sin in itself, in other words. Because it tries to hide and cover up for what you have not done. So we can call it an error, an accident, if we want to. But we're not going to get away with it in the eyes of God. Chapter seven, verse sixteen. Be not righteous overmuch. Neither make yourself overwise. Why should you destroy yourself? In other words, don't get cute and self-righteous and come up with an overly wise or cute answer, or a justification, a covering, a hiding. Why destroy yourself with excuses? Is that, is that the desired response when the self-deceit is removed and self-justification usually kicks in? Our cute answers don't mean a thing. Chapter 8, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. God sometimes sits back and waits. He doesn't bring penalties always immediately. He waits to see what we will do, if we will repent, what our excuses will be. And so often we say, well, I must be okay. My excuse must have worked. My self-justification passed God's muster. (laughs) But did it? Did it really? Our heart can get fully set to do evil if we are not corrected immediately. And God doesn't always do that. So we conclude, I must be okay. Let's look at some classics. I gave this as a Bible study in an area recently and people gave me some excuses that uh, we tend to come up with. I'm I'm sure none of of them were their own. They're probably just some that they had seen at some point in life. So I jotted a few down. Yabat. That's one of the biggest ones, isn't it? That's one of the commonly used ones. I think we've all used that one. Yes, but. In other words, You're right, but I have a justification. I have an excuse. I have a what we would call a reason, and then we go on with whatever our yabbat is. It was too hard. I just couldn't do it. It was too hard. I remember one time I was trying to lay the foundation for a house in. Squishy red clay in Alaska, and you could take a step, and the whole foundation would shudder and shake. That's the way it was down around Homer. And I was by myself at the time, trying to get this thing squared up on sliding, mushy, gooey ooze in which you would go up to your knees. You had to build a sand pad in the middle of the clay, and then try to lay concrete on top of that, and it was a very difficult thing. This is too hard. I can't do it. And in frustration, I gave up and went home, saying I can't do it. But I had to do it. No one else was going to do it for me. The minute I left the job site, somebody else didn't show up and do it for me. I finally had to go in and fall on my face before God and say, This is too hard. I can't do it. Help me. And somehow I regained, I think through his spirit, the will, the courage, the patience to go out and try harder and figure out a way. And you know, it came together. It worked. And it happened. And it came out right. But had I stayed on my excuse, that foundation would have never gotten laid. We have to get past those. We can't say it's too hard We have to gather ourselves up and find a way. But spiritually speaking, it's so easy sometimes for us to tell God that you've laid too much on me. I can't control myself. It's too hard. Very common excuse. Or I didn't have time. There was no time. Very common excuse we use. I didn't have time. Well, can we make time? Can we sort our priorities out? and find the right priority so that the things that really are important get done? Or can we fool around and procrastinate with things that aren't as important because we don't want to get to the more difficult tasks, and then, calculatedly, we run out of time because we didn't really want to do it anyway, and then we say, I didn't have time, to boss or to God or to whomever. We had the time. Did we use it right? If only is a fairly common excuse. Well, if only conditions had been different. If only it hadn't been too cold, to use that proverb. I tried, or I'm trying. You know what I'm, I'm trying is, or I tried? It's an excuse for not accomplishing. When somebody tells me, I'll try to do it. I figure it probably won't get done. When somebody says, I am going to do it, then it probably will get done, because they haven't laid their excuse ahead of time. I will do it. But when I hear a plaintiff whine, well, I'll try. I don't expect it to be done. Give me a commitment. That's the way God feels about it. He wants commitment from us. I'm not just going to try to be a Christian. I will. It is my will to do so. I will do what's necessary. Another excuse, but you. In other words, it's your fault. I didn't mean to. He, she, or they, we covered that with Adam and Eve. It's her fault, their fault, or it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Conditions did this to me. I think I used this example in the first sermon, but I'll use it again because I like it so well. In Spanish, there's a phrase, if I remember it correctly, La taza se rompió, the cup dropped itself. I didn't knock it off the table. I didn't drop it. It must have dropped itself. And a whole culture is built on that premise. But there is an excuse. I did nothing wrong. In other words, the whole culture is self-justifying. How does a cup drop itself? How does it crawl to the edge of the table and fall off? Well, it doesn't. It's an inane, stupid excuse. But a whole culture is built on that premise. So we will go, and the point here is this, we will go to great extreme to find some reason why something happened the way it did and it isn't our fault. You're not fair. That's one of the Prime excuses people use with God. This isn't fair. Why did you put me down here in this den of snakes? It isn't fair. Maybe I could have used that excuse with my pretzel on the plane. It wasn't fair that you let these people do this. You see, in the sanctity of my own home, which has been deleavened, I don't have much of a temptation. I don't have an opportunity Because it's not there. But when I'm out in the world, the opportunities abound. That should tell us something about staying away from the world. Because we heighten our chances of sin the more we are involved with the world. And the less we are involved with the world, the less our chances of sinning. Here's a very common excuse. Well, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot your Sabbath, I forgot your laws, I forgot this, I forgot that. That's a well-worn excuse in the paths of our mind. I forgot. Because we can blame a lot on forgetting something. And we excuse ourselves that way. Now it may not be in the eyes of an employer or in the eyes of God a worthwhile excuse, but as long as we can feel self-excused, then our conscience is assuaged and we feel okay about it. Just as we can be a sin and blind and naked, and in our own minds, we are clothed in finery and righteous and holy. I didn't get around to it. You've seen the little wooden things that people pass around. It's around to it. See, they admit that they, that it is an excuse that we use a lot. I didn't get around to it, so they've made a round to it to pass out, to get rid of that excuse. But we laugh about it and we keep using the excuse. And the round to it's kind of a cute little button to put on the desk, and then we can point at it and say, "See, I didn't get around to it. I am excused." I don't know how. There are many, many people who go through life blaming their parents for all their problems. If dad and mom had only raised me different, see how quickly and summarily we can excuse our whole life and justify it? by, I'm this way because of what my parents did or did not do. Instead of maturely coming to the point we accept what we are, and do something about it, but it's so easy to justify it and lay the blame on someone else, and therefore never overcome, never be responsible, never commit to things in life, and go through our whole lives of 70, 80, 90 years, blaming our parents, who may be even long dead, but we still use them for an excuse as to why we are the way we are. Now God says to all the churches, overcome, and I will grant you to sit with me in my throne. He doesn't sound like he wants to take a lot of excuses. Now here's one that I think we in the church use a lot because we all know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous, no, not one. Boy, what an opportunity for an excuse this provides if we want to take this route. We can say, I'm a sinner. Therefore, since I'm a sinner, my sins, I guess, are justified. Now, we will willingly admit, I think all of us, since these scriptures are in the Bible, that we are sinners. But that's as far as we want it to go. That's as far as we want it taken. We don't want anyone to get specific about what our sins are, nor do we wish to get specific with ourselves about what our sins are. Suffice it to say, I'm a sinner, and therefore, I'm okay. Okay. I don't have to define my sins. I don't have to overcome them since I've admitted I'm a sinner. Now, this doesn't make sense, does it? It's kind of lame. Well, no, it doesn't make sense, but we use it. We find a way of justifying ourselves. We will admit to people, yeah, I'm a sinner, but don't get specific about my sins. So it becomes an excuse and a self-justification for whatever sins we want to cover, hide, keep, or not face. Now, let's go back to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, in verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. That's a principle we live with every day, as human beings with deceitful, desperately wicked hearts. We want to find a way to make our ways clean in our own eyes. And that's what self-justification is all about. That's what excuses are all about. Finding an excuse to excuse. Finding an excuse to get away from, to hide from, to make ourselves feel good. We are in a feel-good society today. And ever since Adam and Eve, we have been in a feel-good society. is isn't something new. There's nothing new under the sun. When they partook of that fruit and suddenly realized they were naked, they did whatever was necessary to feel good, and that is to try to hide from God. And if he did happen to look behind the right tree and find them, they tried to cover their bodies because they felt a sense of shame suddenly. So they wanted to feel good about themselves and they would tell the eternal living creator anything that came to their mind, any excuse to try to feel good about themselves and hope that he would feel good about them. So we will find any way we can to make our ways seem right. That's just the way the human heart works. Chapter 18, verse 17. He that is first in his own cause seems just, but his neighbor comes and searches him out. you ever notice that with people? They'll tell their side of the story. And their side of the story sounds pretty good because it's slanted, it's directed, it's pushed in a certain direction. And they will emphasize what they think will make them look good, and they will de-emphasize or lie about that which might make them look bad. But then when the neighbor comes, or the wife or the husband comes, or whoever the other side of the coin is, and tells that story, ah, now the picture changes somewhat. But we do this unthinkingly. We want ourselves to look right. How many people are there in prison who really did it? They found a way to justify whatever they've done, and I they will finally delude themselves to the point they say, I really didn't do it, and they believe it. How hard is it to correct someone? Most of us shy away from correcting each other. all of us do. Because we have learned by experience that we're going to run into justifications, excuses, so-called reasons, the human brain, the human mind, the human heart does not want to face its inadequacies. It doesn't want to fess up to them, and it makes excuses. Herbert Armstrong said, I don't know how many times I heard him say it, the hardest thing for a person to admit is that they're wrong. So we have to go with trembling hand when we are to try to correct someone, unless they're our kids, you know. Because we obviously are preeminent there, so we don't have too much problem with that, although some people do. They're afraid of the children, even. And we have a society that's gone that direction. We're afraid to correct them for fear they'll kill us. Because we have not done it when they were young, and the society around us does not correct. But our pride, our vanity, and our ego gets in the way. So it is very, very difficult to approach someone and try to point out what is wrong. And the first excuse that comes to mind is, you're just as bad as I am. Who do you think you are? Those are excuses and self-justifications. Who do you think you are correcting me? You're just a man, too. That's true. We can learn from anybody. doesn't matter their position in society. We can learn from anybody if we're humble and contrite. How many times have I sat down with married couples and they would present their own side and it would be just the opposite of the other person's and arguments ensue. Chapter 30 of Proverbs. Chapter 30, verse 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. You could have said that about any generation. We all want to be pure in our own eyes. We will find a way to convince ourselves that we are pure. And that's what Laodicea and Sardis have done. And that doesn't mean that the other churches don't have some self-deception either because as human beings we all do and some self justification But those two are pointed out specifically as being absolutely the opposite of what God says. Yet he also says back there in Revelation 3 that if that filthiness is not washed away, punishment will ensue and reward will not be forthcoming. Here's a pretty down-to-earth example. Chapter 30, verse 20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats or imbibes or commits adultery and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. I have eaten of sin, she says, and wipes her mouth, is the imagery, and says, I have done no wickedness. Not even really an excuse here. Just refusing to face it is a self-justification. I haven't sinned. Let's go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Verse 24. You know the story of the talents, about how one was given five and another two and another one, and so on. But I want to cut to the chase here in verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you that you are a hard man. Here's his first excuse. It's your fault. You're a hard man. I, you know, I, I couldn't handle this, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you have not strawed, and I was afraid. Fear or, ca- or cowardice is no excuse. It's simply not an excuse. I went and hid your talent in the earth, and lo, here you have that is yours. Here's another justification. I didn't lose anything. You still got what you had. I'm okay. Don't hit me. A lot of excuses tied up in this one man short speech. You're a hard man. I was afraid. And here's what you gave me to start with. There's three big ones right there. His Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. You ought therefore to have put my money to the exchangers and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. At least I could have gotten interest out of it. Take therefore the talent from him and give it to him which has ten, the one who offered no excuses but produced. God is interested in production, not in excuses or justifications. Luke 14, Luke 14, I'll offer no excuses for this sermon, Days of Unleavened Bread, we're supposed to be overcoming. These are hard things, it is not easy to remove the self-deception by studying the Word of God, nor is it easy to sweep aside our excuses for not accomplishing what he has told us to do, and that is to overcome but there are many examples here to show what God's reaction to our excuses is. Luke 14, and let's begin in verse 12. Then said he also to him that bade him, When you make a dinner or a supper, call not your friends nor your brethren, neither your kinsmen nor your rich neighbors, lest they also bid you again and recompense be made you. We can find all kinds of excuses for spending time with our friends and ignoring other people that we might not get along with as well but whom we probably should be getting to know. So there's an excuse we use for our social life. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. How many of us do this? Or do we stay within our little circle that we've developed that we're comfortable in and find excuses for not bringing in so-and-so who's maimed or blind or poor or widowed or orphaned or whatever, or one who is wealthy, as opposed to he who is not. Well, it says the poor. Contrast between the poor and the wealthy. We like to do things with people from whom we might receive some recompense. Verse 15, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he to him, A certain man made a great supper, and bad many, And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, I must need go and see it. I pray to have me excused. Pass over my sins. Pass over my lack of desire to be there. Pass over my lack of basical reaction to the supper that you've prepared. And the spiritual overtones here are great. Toward overlooking that which God has offered us, to sit and sup with him in the kingdom of God. But we have all these things, all these excuses. i got a piece of ground i got to go see. Another said I've got, verse 19, five yoke of oxen. I've got to prove them. I've got to check them out. Have me excuse?" Another said, I've married a wife, and I can't come. My wife won't let me, claims it on her, Or I need to be with her, or probably hearkening back to the Old Testament, where after you were married, you didn't go to the bar for a year, and you were there to cheer up your wife. So he used that excuse, perhaps, out of the Old Testament itself. All kinds of reasons why we're not willing to take the effort to get dressed and go to the supper. We don't have oxen, we do have wives, we may have a piece of ground, but if we don't have these excuses, we've got a lot of others, which we've already covered, and there are a lot more that I didn't even bring up, because the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and we'll find an excuse for almost anything, and denying the kingdom of God and having our minds on the affairs of this world is the excuse that is offered right here. Well, Christ didn't buy it, or this man in this parable did not buy it. Get these out of here and invite someone else. Our our excuse bucket will not hold water. Romans 1. Romans 1. Here he says in verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. We can see his creation all around us, in the heavens, on the earth, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. These evolutionists will not have an excuse. It's just ludicrous to try to excuse our lack of obedience to God and his word by saying we must have evolved. Now there is a classic excuse of all time. We must have evolved. And yet they know the laws of probability are such. This could not have happened. But they willingly blind their eyes to what we see around us. I mean, just look at your own self and the systems that allow you to see, to hear, to eat, to digest, to move. This couldn't have evolved. And how did a man and a woman both in all those billions of years fail to come to the point they were able to reproduce and this thing had to start over and go for billions of years until a man and a woman by natural selection were developed again and there were still a couple of organs that weren't quite right? So it had to start over for more billions of years? Give me a break. What an inane, foolhardy, stupid excuse. Look at all the intricacies of this world and this universe. And they're without excuse. That was the subject of the World Tomorrow broadcast for years. With a most inane excuse that man has kind of guessed has probably even come up with. There can't be a God who created all this, it must have just happened, therefore I don't have to answer to a higher authority. That's the bottom line about evolution, it's just an excuse. But God says, with all that I have made and put before you, you are without excuse. (laughs) Do You think when some of these people come up before Jesus Christ in a resurrection, And they offer the excuse, well, I thought it all just happened. I didn't really think you were there. Would you like to be in their shoes when they offer that excuse? Oh, man. Mine are bad enough. Now, let's go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is an appropriate one to use at this particular time of year because it is speaking of Christ and his agony and facing death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God did forsake him. We need to understand that. He had all the sins of the world, including yours and mine, on his back. And because of those sins that we have perpetrated, he was without excuse. Something, someone had to die because of sin. And God will not tolerate sin. Therefore, he forsook he who had all our sins on his back. So when Christ said, why have you forsaken me? He meant what he said. He had been forsaken. He was filthy and dirty with the sins of 60 billion people, plus or minus. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, O you, that inhabit the praises of Israel, burdened and weighted down with the sins of the whole world. He had trouble breaking through to God. He had trouble being heard. God was ignoring his cry. God hears not the prayers of sinners. And though he had not sinned himself, he had our sins on him, and it's the same thing, same result. Maybe it's a good lesson for us and that we don't always get instantaneous answers to every prayer we make, because we are yet sinners. And God is going to let us suffer to some degree down here, just as we made Jesus Christ suffer. Verse 5, they cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. He felt so humble, so contrite, so weighted by the sin that he felt like a worm. How can we rise in our haughtiness and say, I am well-dressed. I have on the finery of righteousness. I can see. I'm good. I'm qualified for the kingdom of God. What pompous idiocy for us to stand and think that we are something when Jesus Christ himself said, I am but a worm. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. We don't like that, do we? We run from that. Any time people start laughing at us and shaking our head, their head at us and ridiculing us, we begin to feel un- uncomfortable and queasy. We don't like it, but we laid that on Jesus Christ. And they say he trusted on the Lord, that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. See what good it did him to trust God? are going to go through some of the same things that he went through, and some of us are going to die for what we believe. If we don't make excuse and excuse ourselves and say, well, I don't even know him, as Peter did. Peter had to get over that justification. (coughs) He had to stand up for it, and he finally had to die for it. His self-justification didn't help And he calls on God and he talks more about how they have gaped at him and how they pierced his hands and feet and how he could see all his bones and so on. I'm just skipping down through here. And he prayed for deliverance in verse 20. Save me from the lion's mouth, verse 21. You know what his goal was? Verse 25, my praise shall be of you and the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. So he says, when I get through all of this, I will stand in the church of God and I will praise them and pay my vows before them. The end result is verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Before this is done, his example of not offering excuse, of not justifying himself, he could have easily said, hey, Look people, I haven't made one sin in my life. These are the sins of other people I'm being punished for, but he didn't make one excuse. He didn't try to justify. He took it. He set an example that we should follow in his steps. This was this is pretty heavy stuff here. Let's go to first Peter two. Peter uses this example on the in, on the church in his day, and it still fits us today. First Peter two, and let's begin in verse eighteen. Servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the arrogant. This is a very difficult thing that Peter is addressing because there were still slaves and slave owners in the church In that day, people actually still owned one another, just like slavery in the United States. And as it was part of that culture, they simply dealt with it. And Peter tells them, this is the way to deal with it. Now, we're not under that kind of servitude today but under even worse conditions than any of us have experienced. This is what they were told to do. Verse 19, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Enduring wrongful suffering. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. When someone comes and says, Look, You've sinned. You've done this. And we take that patiently. (laughs) What reward is in that? We did the deed. We don't even like to take it patiently when we did the deed. We like to find excuse. But if, when you do well and suffer for it, when we're wrongly accused, it's hard enough to admit we have sinned when we have sinned. Contrast to that to when we are accused and we haven't done it. Boy, there's where you have to bite your tongue and hang on to it. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It isn't even acceptable until you suffer for that which you have not done. For even here unto where you called, He uses the example we just read about in Psalm 22. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. To do as he did under those circumstances. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He hadn't sinned at all, as we just saw in Psalm 22. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He just says, God will sort this all out in his own mind. I'm not going to worry about it. They can decry me, belittle me, castigate me, all they want. I'll just leave it in God's hands and I won't answer. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but now are returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What an incredible, powerful example of someone who had every sin that had ever been committed on this earth. Every last sin laid on his head. Not his own sin but all the other, and didn't offer one yabbit, didn't offer if only, or but he, but she, but they. Not a word. He just took it. Do you even begin, do I begin to comprehend the power, the self-control, the character that is involved in that example not one self-justification not one self-righteousness not one sin it's easy to rise up and puff ourselves up in self-righteousness self-justification when our self-deceit is removed but the first word to all those hyphenated phrases, is self. Oh, he could have made excuse. He had every excuse in the world. He didn't only have excuses, he had reasons. But he didn't even offer reasons. He just took it. Let's go to Isaiah 53 and see this underlined a little bit more. Isaiah 53. We read through this one usually in the Passover service, and don't take time to expound it, but let's expound it a little today. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty, that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Very, very familiar with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed, physically and spiritually. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Isaiah is an end-time prophecy. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Whatever we have done, whatever routes we have taken, whatever ways of the flesh we have followed, it was all laid on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But notice this. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. The innocence of a little lamb, who just gets his throat slit and offered, his blood draining on the ground. And it is only through that Passover, his blood on the lintel and the doorposts, that passes over. That excuses that justifies our sins. All the excuses and self-justifications we can offer mean nothing. It had to be an innocent one who did not even open its mouth. I remember a goat that I raised on the bottle. It was a billy goat. And it followed me around, just like a little dog. And unlike little dogs... One day my dad hung it up by its hind feet and he took it by the horn and a sharp butcher knife and slit its throat right in front of me and its blood began to drain out on the ground and it began to choke and shake. And as the blood drained out, the shakes and the convulsions got weaker and weaker. And I was standing there looking that head of mine in the eye and his eyes faded from brightness to dullness and it was dead and I'll never forget the feeling standing and watching my pet goat that followed me everywhere I went except in the house and the bed bleeding his last before my very eyes and I choked up and I cried And it wasn't any fun. That's what Jesus Christ did for you and me. He willingly got hung up by the heels. Not by the heels, but the hands and feet. He willingly poured his blood on the ground and his eyes faded from that bright, shining, clear, perceptive life to dullness and death. And he offered not a word. His body convulsed and shook and died. And he made no excuse. He did not try to justify. I won't turn to it, but Matthew twenty-six sixty-three says he answered the high priest, not a word. Not a word in his defense. That isn't the way we do it, brethren. We get a whole bevy of lawyers and pay them all we can to come to our defense. On a spiritual level, we have our own array of self-excuses and self-justifications that we offer to man and to God. After what he went through, do you think those excuses are going to cut any ice with him? How can we kid ourselves? How can we deceive ourselves? How can we justify what we are? Let's go now to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. The mighty God, even the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Out of Zion the perfection of beauty God has shined. That's a prophecy of him shining out of Mount Zion. It's a prophecy of him shining out of the church before the whole congregation, as we read earlier. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He is going to speak his mind. He is going to show his hand. This is going to happen! Got your excuses all geared up? Are you ready for this? He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me that those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We have made a covenant to sacrifice our lives. Daily. and he's going to call his saints together. Now, judgment is now on the spiritual house of Israel. Your judgment and mine is being made every day. It won't do you to have a sack of excuses when Christ returns. Are we laying our excuses today, ahead of time, as our judgment occurs? Brethren, let's understand something. You and I, will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the same way that this world is. Our judgment is upon us every day, today. When he returns, we will either be raised out of the ground to righteousness righteousness in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, or we will await another resurrection We will either be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, a split second after the graves are opened, or we will not. We will not, at that point, have a chance to offer our excuses. We're offering them every day today. And justifying ourselves before his throne for not doing what he tells us to do. We do it every day. I think every last one of us does it every day. In some way, finding a way to excuse ourselves. But does God excuse us? The penalty of sin is death. If our sins are not somehow otherwise excused or justified, we will have to die for our own And excuses we make from day to day, do not cut it. He said, if you overcome, not if you offer justifications. The heavens shall declare his righteousness, verse 6, for God is judge himself. We're not going to be judged by anybody else, but by God himself. And sometimes we use that as an excuse in itself. Well, God is my judge. So therefore, I don't have to listen to anything you say. Well, God is our judge. And when they eat the words, as I said earlier, what goes around comes around. And I ate the pretzel after making light and kidding someone else. I actually ate it. Maybe that's why I was so stupid. Maybe I needed that lesson maybe I needed to face during these days how easily sin comes into my mind out of the evilness of my heart. Verse 8, I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of your house nor he goes out of the fold for these are all mine, he says. Verse 15, Call on me in the day of trouble. Skipping to verse 21, these things have you done, and I kept silence. Well, he, well. above that, he's talking about uh, thievery, he's talking about adultery, he's talking about our mouth turned to evil, verse 19, and our tongue framing deceit. You spit, sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. Then verse 21, these things have you done, and I kept silence. Remember Ecclesiastes 8, 11? because judgment is not executed speedily, men's heart is set in evil. You've done these things, and I kept silent, though you thought I was altogether such as one as yourself, or such and one as yourself. But God would excuse, as we excuse ourselves. We thought God was like men, that we could get away with it. But I will reprove you and set them in order before your eyes. All these sins are going to be set in order. Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offers praise glorifies me, and to him that orders his conduct right, will I show the salvation of God, echoing the words of James, not being forgetful hearers, but doers of the word. Now, we've talked most of this time about self-justification. Let's examine in closing one more chapter showing the correct response when we have sinned. When the self-deception is removed and when we are faced with either admitting our sin or finding a way to self-justify and cover it, what is the correct response? We've already seen the response of Jesus Christ. But I saved this one because we might excuse ourselves saying, yeah, but he was Christ. But this one we're about to talk about was just as bad as any of us. Just as bad as you and me. We can't use him for an excuse. Psalm 51. When this man had the deception and the justifications that he had built up in his own mind to the point that he felt good about himself and wiped his mouth and said, I have done no sin. And it was a long time later, after he had put it behind his mind, out of his mind, out of his heart, and totally justified what he had done, someone came and told him a story about a little sheep was the sheep of one owner and that this rich man who had lots of sheep took that sheep and cravenly killed it to feed to his guests when he had all kinds of sheep and this man said that man has to die for that sin and Nathan said you're the man David all of his justifications Were stripped away. All of those lies he had told himself to justify taking another man's wife and then killing the man were stripped away and he had no place to hide. He had by his own words condemned himself before the prophet. Did he then try to give that prophet all those excuses that he had used on himself to become clean in his own eyes? Here is his reaction. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I'm not going to try to justify them. Please, God in heaven, blot them out. Forgive me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I offer no excuse. Just wash me. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It's just like a technicolor film suddenly before my eyes. I can't hide. I can't justify. I have sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. Yes, his sins had repercussions for other human beings. But it was really God's law and God's way of life and David's whole life that he had put in jeopardy before the God of heaven and earth. I've done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. He wasn't trying to justify himself. He said, God, you are justified by sending this man to tell me, to strip away my excuses and to show me what I really am. that's what he addresses next, verse 5. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I've been wretched from the day of my birth. I'm a worm, as Christ said. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, not the evil deception of the human heart that we can't even know and plumb and discern. You desire truth inside, not excuse. And in the hidden part, you shall make me to know wisdom. I finally am going to see all the filth and the vomit that is inside me as a human being. I will face it. I am facing it. I admit it before your throne. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Purging is not easy. (laughs) It's like taking a Brillo pad and scrubbing your flesh. I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice he felt just like every bone in his body had been broken his whole self-justification system was suddenly torn down and he had to face reality and truth in the inward parts hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities he didn't try to say I have not sinned Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He realized his whole spirit and attitude and approach had been wrong. And that he had to repent from the inside out. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. And he didn't give up. Faced with his appalling, overriding, wretched self and sin, He trusted, he believed in God enough that he knew he could and would be forgiven and that God would cleanse him and that he would be made clean before God in spite of his wretchedness. And in this, there is great hope. Because he suddenly got his mind off himself, brethren. That story shook him to the very core of his being about that one sheep being taken away from that poor man and killed. Just as my pet goat was killed before my very eyes. I can understand in a way how David must have felt when he realized the enormity of his sin. Because I have sinned terribly before God and you have We all have. we must face it and not offer excuses. And then we must believe in faith in the forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ which is there to justify those sins in his death. Self-justification will get us nothing because we would die for our own sins. But the justification of Jesus Christ and his blood spilled that one lamb of God, the only one he had, was killed for you and me. He believed. David believed. But that lamb would be shed for him. Hadn't even been done yet. But he understood it was to come. So he got his mind off himself, and where did he put it then? He put it right where James tells us to put it. When he said, don't be hearers only, but doers, he said, here's the test of Christianity. Do you visit the widow and orphan, the homeless, the poor? Do you invite the maimed and the poor and the sick and the blind to your home? Do we do these things or do we just talk a good fight and justify why we're too busy to do what God tells us to do? That's what we have to do and keep ourselves unspotted from the world, James says. Then we have real religion. That's what, God, that's what David got here. Real religion, verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. I'm going to use my example. I'm going to write my example in the Bible. I'm going to put it forth for all mankind forevermore as an example horrible, Horrible sin. Now I said something I haven't proved. I don't know whether David actually wrote this psalm. But it was his prayer. So yes, he wrote it. It was his psalm, his prayer. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So he said, I'm going to get my mind off my wretched self, and I'm going to take care of other people. I'm going to use my sin as an example to others, not to go the way that I have gone, but to repent. O Lord, open you my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you desire not sacrifice, else I would give it. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. No self-justification, no self-righteousness, absolute admittance of sin, and laying himself on the throne of God. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. As badly as we have sinned, brethren, and as much as God has scattered us for that sin, and as much as he punished David for his sin, there's a prophecy written here. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. Repair the church. Repair the damage. Put your church back together, the faithful remnant who will not self-justify and stand and say, I am clothed with righteousness, but those who say I'm a worm and will contritely and meekly put aside all excuse and all self-justification and lay it before the feet of him who bore all our sins on his back and is able to justify, to pass over, to excuse our sins through his death. Hang up your phones, please.